Welcome to the Wednesday afternoon edition of London Live. It's not Mike Stubbs. It's Jess Brady. I am your guest host this week. Mike is on vacation. He's back next week, though, so that's good. You'll have your regularly scheduled time with the hardest working man in radio as of Monday, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that is the plan. He's uh, been off for a couple weeks now, getting in some R&R, which is uh, obviously much deserved. And we all need it every once in a while. I was off on vacation uh, two weeks ago, and it was lovely. Had a lot of time to catch up with people. And it was during some really hot, hot weather. And uh, obviously over the weekend, we had ridiculously hot weather. It was, you know, just oppressive, the humidity. It was like so muggy. It's like you walked outside and it felt like you were on... uh, you basically like hit a wall of moisture in the air and it was gross. But thankfully this week it's been much nicer. It's very pleasant. We've been I've been chatting about that with a, a lot of people as Canadians tend to do. What else do we talk about? The weather. And uh, you know with good reason because we see such extremes. And it's kind of funny that this is our first uh, topic of the day. We're talking about snow. Yeah. Don't get mad at me. I know it's still a ways away winter and the and the idea of snowfall, but now is the time to talk about it and make sure that we're prepared for snow because every year we have this discussion about how brutal the roads are sometimes when we get slammed with a, a squall or just a system that comes through and we always have the discussions about when do the plows roll out? How much are they, are they clearing away? At what point, what is that threshold that they go out there and start clearing away the snow that, so that we can you know still drive on the roads in the winter? Every year, like clockwork, we always have this discussion. So someone who is very involved in that discussion and talked about it even during his uh, campaign I believe, uh, during the last municipal election is Ward 2 Councillor Sean Lewis. And he joins me on the line now because there were discussions about this issue uh, at 300 Dufferin this week. And Sean has some ideas on how we can improve conditions out on the roads and, and maybe looking at those thresholds. So first of all, Sean, thanks so much for taking some time to chat this afternoon. My pleasure, Jess. I, I hate to be a downer to folks on a sunny summer afternoon, but winter is coming. <laughs> it's true. It's like uh, out of out of Game of Thrones. I'm not a Game of Thrones person, but I, I, I have picked up on that from the pop culture lexicon. Winter is coming. It's hard to be on social media and not have seen memes about that. So yeah, it's true. And we all know that I'm, I'm out there a lot on the social media, on the Insta, on the, on the Twitter, you can find me. I'm there. Um, but yeah, so I mean, well, to get back to it here, we've got uh, we've got beautiful sunny skies out there today. But we are talking snow removal because, like I said, every year we have this issue where we're dealing with, uh, you know, people are complaining about snow collection and the crews are out there working hard. But by virtue of the rules that are in place, they're not out there immediately when the snow starts to fall. So first of all, maybe, Sean, tell us what the situation is currently. What are the current thresholds? So currently, we, and and the areas that we're looking to improve, I I actually want to start there. What we decided on at the committee last night was we're going to look at opportunities to improve uh, residential streets and sidewalk clearing. Uh, I'd asked for a, a an a la carte menu of items and, and some price tags attached to those um, as to what it would cost us. And it to come back and it was, we, so we do have to be budget conscious as well. And we spend about $15 million every year on snow clearing currently. So enhancing those services is not going to come for free. But when we talk about residential streets right now, we wait until we get 10 centimeters of snow accumulated before we send out a snow plow to clear you know, a crescent, 
a cul-de-sac, uh, one of the neighborhood streets where people live. Not our major arteries. Of course, we start working on the major arteries. Sometimes before the snow has fallen, we're out there applying uh, the de-icing brine. We're out there uh, when the snow starts falling, applying sand. So we start working on the main roads pretty much before the first snowflake hits. But the streets where people live, 10 centimeters is when we wait to send out a plow. And for our sidewalks all over the city, it's 8 centimeters before we start clearing our sidewalks. So we've proposed that or what's gone back to staff now to come back to us for the multi-year budget is uh, an appropriate language and business case for starting to do residential streets at 8 centimeters and starting to do our sidewalks at 5 centimeters. Uh, The sidewalks because, of course, people have mobility issues. Um, little ones are trying to get to school on sidewalks. Uh, eight centimeters can be quite a challenge. So we want to look at five for that. And on our residential streets, bring it down to eight from ten. And, and basically, it comes down to plowing less snow more often. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's not like you're saying, uh, let's go from 10 centimeters down to five. You know, it's it's it, you're looking at trying to do a gradual reduction so that it's not too much of an impact on on the budget. Uh, but it will make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, the impact on people when they're trying to walk and trying to get through with their cars on those streets. Exactly. We have something in the range of and I, the exact number. Uh, I don't have off the top of my head, but it's something like 3,700 kilometers of roads to manage and maintain in the city of London. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the vast majority of those are neighborhood streets. Uh, You know, there are only so many major arteries in the city. The rest are are the places people live. So it is a lot. Even going down two centimeters uh, on those streets and lowering our sidewalks by three centimeters, it's going to have a budget impact of $1.1 million. So that's about point two on your tax levy so if we were just purely adding it to the tax levy as a cost if we were at 2.6 uh for a tax increase we'd be at 2.8 um just to pay for those costs now i think that there are some areas where we can find some efficiencies uh in how we do this and part of what i'd ask staff to do is report on some of the new technologies that are out there and how we can implement those better uh for example we have um weather we have one out at the airport. Uh, when I was at FCM, I had an opportunity to sit on a snow removal workshop and see what some other municipalities were doing. And Vaughan, for example, has quite a few more of these uh, weather stations deployed. And they were able to save on the dumping of 40 tons of salt on their roads uh, in one winter because of better weather management. Uh, and, and we saw it in the, the report from staff. Uh, We had a snow event last year where the west end of London had 16 centimeters. The east end of London had five centimeters. And that's one area where I'm not going to complain about East London getting less than the rest of the city. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In in this case, I'm happy that we got the smaller number. Uh, But we don't need to deploy the same level of resources to every part of the city every snowfall. That's especially being in a snow belt. Sometimes, well, one part of the city gets walloped and another part of the city doesn't. So I think that there's some efficiencies in how we deliver our snow plowing that can help us enhance our customer service uh, with clearing streets sooner without adding a whole lot of a tax base.
Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as we're talking about that, that cost, the roughly 1.1 million and, and the impact on on the um, multi-year budget increase, I feel like when it comes to snow removal, this is something that most people will get behind because it impacts you one way or the other. Either you're a driver and you know how treacherous it can be when you're out in a snowstorm or just after a storm, or you are a pedestrian or you're waiting, uh, you know, for transit at a bus stop, things of that nature. So it's one of those costs that I feel like people, I mean, and again, what do I know? I've not polled every single Londoner here in terms of their opinion on it. But I would imagine that this one is is kind of like a win-win. Like, yes, you will have to pay a little bit more on your bill, but the impact is is readily visible. It's not the same as uh, having to pay uh, into the tax fund for, um, say, infrastructure in one end of the city that you may not use. In this case, it's snow removal. We all need this. So it should be one that people will be hopefully more on board with than than say another budget line item that they may not see as much use for. I think you're absolutely right, and and I did um, some polling on this issue last summer in in a, an election campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, and in even in the heat of July, when I had conversations with people on their doorstep, uh, you know, better pothole repair and better snow plowing was something that I heard on a regular basis because it is a service that people see an immediate value from their tax dollar with when we clear their roads they they can clearly see that that's their tax dollars at work yeah uh, and they appreciate that and and a number of people did say to me you know if i had to pay you know ten dollars more a year and my my road was plowed the way i expect it to be i i'd be okay with that yeah and that's kind of sentiment and i know that there are folks for whom even ten dollars a year in extra taxes is going to be you know a, a bit of a struggle i know there's a lot of people out there on fixed incomes but those are also often the people who need to use the sidewalk to get to transit and, and struggle with getting there when we have eight centimeters of snow. Um, there were some other options that we did not advance. And I'll be honest, when we, we were talking about the bus stops, you know, LTC contracts the clearing of the bus stops. Uh, would I like to see a better job done there? Yes, but are there all kinds of areas where we need to improve transit? I, I think it's that's a pretty clear giant capital yes as well. Mm. Um, so I can't, and, and it would be unfair for us as a city council to say to them, well, you have to use this part of your budget on enhanced snow removal service. If they get to that decision themselves, great, but I think that they've got a lot of different budget pressures to deal with. Uh, another one uh, was making school zones a priority uh, to clear the walk-to-school routes and I want school zone safety. I was really happy last week to share with constituents that uh, speed humps were going on in on front of Bonaventure Road uh, Public School. That was great. That was something the neighborhood's been asking for for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got central line markers on Waybell uh, in the St. Pius and Prince Charles school zone now to slow traffic down there. It is important, but clearing school routes is, as a priority can be really complex because every school has a different path not every student uses the same path not every school has done an an active and safe roads to school plan uh some have and that's great that they have um then you get the issues of pathways on school board property and whether or not the school board would clear those at the same standard so it gets very complex and while it's an issue i think we should you know perhaps revisit in future years i think for now if we just do a better job with our sidewalks we'll improve school zone access as a result of that and then getting those residential roads cleared so that, you know, ideally 
uh, little how are kids walking to school. But sometimes mom and dad do need to give them a ride and yeah. making sure that the streets are clear for mom and dad to be able to do that and get to work themselves. That's important too. So, but we do have to have this discussion now yeah, <laughs> because it's too late when the snow starts falling. Yeah, it's and, absolutely true. Yeah. And, and this is going to, I want people to understand this is not going to change how we clear our roads this winter because this is going to continue through the multi-year budget process. We'll finalize our budget next January and we have existing snow removal contracts with some of our outside contractors uh, that run until the end of 2020 and in one case the end of 2021. So it makes sense to enhance our standards as those contracts expire and when we renew them or look to new service providers that we look for those enhanced service standards. Now we're, I also want to be really clear, the minimum standards that the province has in place already, that's still what London is held to in terms of what we are legally obligated to do. Um, We can't change those, but what we can do is try and enhance the customer service that we deliver by going above and beyond. And there will be snow events being in the snow belt. Sometimes we get snow two, three, four days in a row where we're not going to be able to deliver that enhanced service, even though we'd like to. We're going to get the bare minimum done, and that's going to be the reality. But where we can, I think it just is good value for the taxpayer dollar to enhance the services that they see impacting their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll keep a uh, keep an eye on this as uh, the discussions continue. Uh, first, obviously, uh, the committee yesterday, and now as we move forward to full council next week. And uh, Sean, thanks very much for coming on to explain mm-hmm. us so very comprehensively what the situation is, where we want to be heading with it, and uh, kind of the timelines that we're dealing with. We appreciate your time this afternoon. Well, it's my pleasure, and, and I realize this might not have been quite as fun as Councillor Morgan and Councillor Ridley <laughs> and I throwing snowballs at each other during last year's uh, municipal campaign. <laughs> um, uh, but it was uh, always great to talk about this. This is an important issue. And even though it's going to take, you know, another year to be practical, I, I'm going to keep working away at this for Londoners because they asked me to. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something that uh, everyone is going to get on board with. I'm sure of it because uh, I myself am someone who, who, when I look at the forecast and I read out when we have uh, snow squall warnings and things like that, I get a little anxious looking at the snowfall totals thinking, oh, God, how am I going to get to work? Is it going to be insane? Uh, And luckily, when I go to work in the morning, there's not very much traffic, generally speaking. So I I luck out that way. But uh, yeah, it certainly is a little bit daunting. And I know that most Londoners feel the way I do. You feel relief when you see the plow coming around uh, to your street. And uh, nice, always nice to see our hardworking folks in uh, operations and in roads doing all the, all that they can. And and with councillors, you know, looking at this issue now, hopefully we, we see continued improvements. Well, and you have to get to work to deliver the news. Uh, <laughs> you can't uh, you can't do that from home. That's right. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we need to throw another clause in there that makes Jess Brady's walk to work or drive to work <laughs> route uh, a priority clearing so that you can get there and deliver the forecast for the rest of us. That would be, I would very much enjoy that. One day last winter, I had to take a cab because my the side streets around where I where I live, they were totally just like impassable at that point. So uh, I had to had to trudge out to the to one of the main roads and and grab a cab from there. So it was, uh, it, I felt like I was telling one of those stories. In my day, I had to walk uphill both ways to school. That's how I, how I feel telling that story. But um, yeah, hopefully we don't run into any issues like that this winter and as we move forward. And Sean, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure, Jess. Have a great afternoon. You too. Take care.
We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're still staying with City Hall. A different issue, though. Uh, we're talking about the Victoria Bridge, which links Old South into the downtown. We're talking to Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for the week. We are having a half hour that is full of uh, kind of City Hall related news, but it's these are stories that impact like a ton of people. They're more, I would say, civic related stories. So we are we were talking about snow clearing just a little while ago with uh, Councillor Sean Lewis, and now we are moving on to a story that first basically was talked about like last year. This was like previous council, previous edition of council was looking at uh, needed renovations for Victoria Bridge. And if you're not familiar with that, it's a long ride out just south of Horton. So around London Hydro, Thames uh, Park and the pool there. Yeah, it's that bridge. And it's like nearly a century old. I think it was first built in like 1926 or something like that. So it's coming up on its 100th birthday and it needs some renos. It needs some repairs um, and, you know, need it. Obviously, it's these, one of these things, bridges, you don't want to mess around with those. <laughs> you want to keep them in good shape. Um, and a plan was decided upon back in the last council term. Uh, at that time, there was some debate from Councillor Michael Van Holst. He wanted to see perhaps some cheaper options for the renos on the bridge. You know, he's trying to, in, in his in his uh, mind, keep an eye on renovation costs and how that impacts taxpayers. Yep, totally reasonable. But a plan was made. A plan was decided upon. And at committee yesterday, and we're going to talk to Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa in a second. She joins me on the line. Uh, she's from Ward 12. They were talking about a move towards tendering out contracts for the project when Michael Van Holst said once again, raising a point, hey, can we not trim some of the costs here? Uh, talking specifically about uh, design elements of it to make the bridge more aesthetically pleasing and other things like that. So joining me on the line, like I said, to uh, give us a little bit more context here is Ward 12 Councillor Elizabeth Pelosa. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us this afternoon about this, uh, about this development at Council. Yes, thank you for having me on. So now anybody who is thinking to themselves, uh, didn't we already talk about Victoria Bridge and didn't we have a plan uh, moving forward? They would not be mistaken, correct? They would not be mistaken. And so what has happened then in the in the last, uh, you know, a couple of days, because there was more discussion at committee on, uh, I believe it was, uh, it was just it was just yesterday. Um, and now the plan is no longer necessarily the plan. Yes, so last night we had our Civics Works Committee meeting and the plan came forward for approval. So we start going to look for tendering processes and we may or may not have hit pause on it. Our next council meeting, it goes before a full council as it was a split vote. I was a, I was in May and said we're looking for a potential cost savings was the issue put forward, which absolutely is important, but that could come at an additional cost. That's right. Yeah, because it's it's not just um, th- like chopping off uh, the you know couple million dollars potentially for the the more um, artistic design of the bridge. Because during public consultations on on uh, from the neighborhood of what people would like to see, uh, they wanted something that was maybe more in keeping with the historical nature of the bridge because it's been at that spot uh, for nearly a century now, linking Old South into the downtown and other areas of the city. Um, but by doing that, by saying, sure, let's go with a, maybe a more plain design 
design, which is uh, something that Councillor Van Holst is uh, championing, um, that will have impacts because it's going to delay things, right, in getting moving with the project. Yeah, uh, staff laid out to us that the first cost that if a person wants a, a new design for it or to go back and even look at what a savings might be, that comes with an initial cost tag of $20,000. Once the person gets that and we've delayed the process, there's annual maintenance for the bridge, the potential emergency repairs, depending on how long we delay it for. And that could be a couple hundred, up to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And it could actually be delayed for one to two years, in which case it's also going to interfere with some other construction projects. Londoners are always complaining that and asking if the city can coordinate things better to help with traffic flow, that we don't have two north-south or two east-west roads closed at the same time. And potentially that's what could be happening. City staff also brought forward the concern of the pillar in the water that it impedes flow, more things are getting stuck on it for debris, and with the frequency and severity of weather events happening, that that's happening more with stuff getting stuck, and there's also species at risk in the area. So just for the water flow quality, they would like to have that removed. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of factors um, that have already been considered um, and and that were incorporated into the into the plan that was supposed to be moving forward, like you said, for uh, tenders and, and things of that nature and contracts. So it's it seems like a, a step back. And I mean, I'm certainly not uh, as as well versed in in council matters as 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 you would be or your colleagues around the, the horseshoe there at 300 Dufferin. But it just kind of feels like an unnecessary step back. It feels like we're, we're going retrotting over ground that's already been been covered. It certainly appears that way, and certainly I appreciate uh, my fellow councillors' concern over cost savings. We are always accountable to the taxpayer, and the report might come back of just, you know, no, we will proceed as originally planned, in which case we could have lost one to two years. Yeah. It's it's true, and I one of the things that um, I want to pick up on that you mentioned, Elizabeth, is the idea that if we do delay this one to two years, we'll be running into other uh, other construction projects that are big ones. Uh, we're talking about work along Wellington for our our BRT uh, project, and also the road widening of Warncliffe Road uh, that needs to that needs to be happening as well. So these are major issues that you know, as as you said, like the city always tries to stagger things so that there's not too great of a burden on traffic flow. But if we do push this back, we could be facing a, a big, big issue. And speaking of someone who lives in Old South myself, uh, yeah. that bridge is critical. Like, I, I couldn't imagine having all of those other things happening as well as as the bridge. Yeah, and some of the other transit projects that you mentioned, they're still in flex too. We're still waiting for final approval of all our funding. So it's just a matter of getting all our projects in a row and preparing the best we can to serve Londoners that we've been accountable. We took in consideration traffic flow. Certainly, Ward 12 is first south of Old South, that mm. there's only so many ways in, and it's frustrating. And when people hate detours, and especially if they run over, and it's the summer or back to school time, like we really need to plan those projects. Certainly, even through Civic Works, we've seen the price of steel going up, which is another concern of mine that as the price of things seem to be rising, that if we delay it, one of those costs is going to be in two years if we put this project off. Yeah, it's true. These Will are... we actually see any savings? Or is this going to be eaten up in consultation fees, emergency bridge repair fees, and increased costs 
of supplies or a reduction in manpower and maybe those labor ends up being more because there's so many other projects going on that we're paying a premium. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. And um, I, I, I appreciate also that, you know, y- you are very conscious of, of the effort to be wise with taxpayer dollars, as you said, like that's always a consideration. Um, but yeah, in trying to, what is that phrase, penny wise? Uh, there's, there's, there's a phrase about uh, being, you know, mindful of budgets and don't be penny wise, but pound foolish. Is that what it is? Foolish. Yeah, yeah, that is it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, 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 it requires a bit of a, a longer view just because one aspect of the design is is more uh, like expensive um, you know, to be aesthetically pleasing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being aesthetically pleasing. I think, you know, the neighborhood should have a say in that. Um, but yeah, like we shouldn't we shouldn't cut off our nose to spite our faces here. Yes. And that's my concern. So I'm looking for that conversation at full council of what other councillors are, are thinking or what their concerns are. There might be other concerns and considerations that we haven't discussed yet. And that's Part of the process, as frustrating as it can be, that we seem that we're dragging sometimes of everyone's trying to balance their needs and what their wards are saying. I said, you know, certainly people have started writing me. So if people have a certain say of what they think, let your counselors know. It's the only way we know what our constituents are thinking of having those conversations. Absolutely. Well, the as you mentioned, the uh, the next time this comes up for discussion will be at full council next week. And we'll, we look forward to seeing what will happen there. Perfect. Yes. Do do keep apprised of new developments. Absolutely. I'm sure that uh, our newsroom will be back in touch with you uh, to see how everything turned out and uh, to get some reaction to that. So, uh, Councillor Pelosa, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you. And now to the news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Wednesday edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. I'm Jess Brady. I am your guest host this week. Mike's on vacation. So you have me for the remainder of the week today, tomorrow and Friday. And then Mike's back on Monday. So don't worry. Regularly scheduled programming will recommence on uh, Monday when Mike is back for you. Until then, I get to sit on the opposite side of the booth from where I usually sit. So it's it's uh I'm switching things up, trading trading places. It's different from doing uh, morning news. Obviously, uh, my alarms on my phone are set at a different time, and uh, you know I can see more of my friends, and that's that's nice. And in, in my evenings and what have you, I see more of my colleagues too on uh, on this shift. I see the afternoon people a lot more, so it's a bit of a flip flop. But yeah, so it's been a lot of fun, and I I hope that uh, you've been enjoying this week so far, and. Uh, and uh, you've been, you know, enjoying the topics. Now, this next story is very interesting to me. It has to do with millennials. Don't roll your eyes. We millennials aren't that bad. <laughs> I'm a leading millennial, so I'm I'm in the older part of the millennial generation, not like the youngins. But this next story has to do with a survey and data collected by HSBC. Yeah, about millennials and what they value in basically romantic partnerships so their relationships and it's it's very interesting let me read you a little bit of this 
So it says the majority of Canadian millennials, 61%, feel anxious about buying a property. So much so that shared financial, 39%, or property, 33% goals, were more important than looks when considering a potential future partner for daters. Hmm. So no more is it that you're looking for someone with a chiseled jawline or, you know, a symmetrical face. Not necessarily. You're thinking more about property potential. And the, the title on this uh, on this news release is Swipe Right for Your Dream Home, which is, of course, a reference to online dating and uh, like Tinder, that sort of thing. Swipe right for yes, swipe left for no, all that good stuff. On Hinge, you're actually clicking an X or a, or a check mark, that too. Very interesting, these stats that have been put out there. Also, just a real quick note, the studies show that millennials are far more likely to say that they had stayed in a bad relationship due to property than Canadians on average. Huh. This is startling. Very interesting. Now, joining me on the line to talk more about this and kind of get some insight into these stats is Barry Gollum. He's the Senior VP, Vice President, of Retail Banking and Wealth Management for HSBC. Barry, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon to talk with us about these results. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's uh, interesting looking at the, these uh, data points that HSBC collected. Uh, you know, when when people are on online dating, or you know, even if they're just meeting potential partners in real life, I, I wouldn't necessarily think to say, "Oh, do you have a house?" or "What's what's your a plan for housing?" that sort of thing. But it's it's something that apparently millennials are considering, at least in part. It was a bit of a surprise, I have to admit. Um, it. Uh, uh, to me, it really talks to how practical and mature millennials are. They, they, really, they recognize that having common, important life goals are important. Uh, and I've got to tell you, that, that's what 28 years of marriage has taught me anyways. That smart gentleman that you are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it is interesting because often millennials get a bit of a bad rap. We're seen as, uh, you know, immature or the, the term snowflake is used a lot. But this is a very, as you said, mature consideration, housing and being compatible in that regard. I, I agree. And even if you look, one of the stats that came out around the tension about going to the bank of mom, mom and dad, and, you know, when I think about it, and, and from my own experience uh, with my daughter, I have a millennial daughter, and she's very sensitive to it. Not that she won't accept help, but she's sensitive to a couple things. One, what it means, the financial impact on me as a parent, but but then also the importance of having their own independence. Yes, certainly. That's that's absolutely true. And I think that um, it, it means more to uh, us millennials. I myself am a leading millennial. I think that's the term. So I'm on, at the, the start of, of that generation. Um, so I'm a little bit older than than some of uh, some of the other people in it. But yeah, it's it, we are in a time right now where millennials are facing different economic realities than, say, our parents and generations that came before us. So yeah, we are a bit more sensitive to that because we recognize that things are tougher for us out there. Uh, given the economy and the types of jobs that we have? It's, uh, it, again, I really think it goes back to very practical, very mature, and really when you think about it, looks are fleeting, but your home can last a lifetime. 
It's true. And, you know, even even if we look at what uh, the home necessarily represents, it, 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 as you said uh, previously, uh, it, it talks, it, it indicates, I guess, being on the same page with your values. And do you spend money the same way? Do you like to save the same way? Do you have the same financial goals? And so it's, it's not, you might, we might focus, say, oh, that's funny that you're looking at housing, but really it's more about what that housing represents. And, and this is really why it's so important to surround yourself with experts. And, and when I say experts, I'm talking about real estate agents, lawyers, leveraging family, and of course, financial advice. Because a big part of our job is educating, um, educating consumers, educating millennials as to what are the different things that they, they have to think about. And so in terms of helping reduce that anxiety, Knowing more, knowing what to think about, helping them better prepare is so critical. Absolutely. And I think that kind of lends nicely to another stat that was uh, kind of uh, highlighted through this uh, through this survey was the idea that millennials, because we are very centered on, you know, financial stability and also shared aspirations for uh, housing, we might stay in a relationship that's perhaps not ideal or the best for us because there is uh, more comfort around a housing situation, which is, is stunning compared to other generations who may not have stayed in a relationship that wasn't as beneficial for them? That was a troubling statistic. Um, We know that financial pressure can be a source of stress in in really any relationship. Again, our hope is that through financial education and advice, it will help minimize that. Certainly. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. Um, and and I was also thinking about these uh, statistics, especially with the shared property aspirations, just kind of like anecdotally, it reminds me of how marriage wasn't always uh, viewed as a romantic partnership. It was often a financial transaction. So the idea that um, and we shouldn't be just saying, uh, you know, traditional marriage here. I mean, it's it's people who could be living common law, what have you relationships often. Absolutely. Yeah, like often those relationships uh, were meant to be financially uh, sound in the first place. It wasn't always about finding your true love. It was about a a good match in terms of bringing families together. So it's interesting that we're seeing a sort of return to that. I mean, I wouldn't want to put too much, uh, too much historical significance on it, but it is interesting that as, as, as generations move forward, there are different priorities. Uh, and I don't have any statistics on this, but from, again, being the, the parent of a millennial and, and, and other friends and relatives, uh, love is still important. However, again, people are very practical. Looking long term, you really have to have those common goals. Absolutely. Romance yeah. is not dead. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. not any, I hope not. <laughs> Barry, I, I hope for all of us that it is not dead. Yeah. <laughs> Although I should ask my wife in terms of why she married me. Was it that we had common goals or... <laughs> That's, that's, you know what? You never know. Maybe sometimes it just works out perfectly. There's that first spark of attraction and then, oh, it's very nice when things work out so that you're on the same page with your goals. (laughs) Right. Well, that's fantastic. And it's it's interesting to delve into these stats, Barry. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today and going over them. And uh, it's definitely food for thought. Thank you so much. Okay, we need to take a quick break. Maybe someone out there listening will do some online dating during this break. Swipe right, swipe left, you know. 
Go for your standards. Don't lower your standards. Go for what your heart wants. <laughs> we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about burgers, the real deal, and Beyond Meat, and the debate over which is better for us. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host. Mike Stubbs is on vacation this week. He's back on Monday, just in case you were wondering. Uh, My tenure on this side of the booth is limited to two and a half more days. (laughs) Today is the half. Tomorrow and Friday are are the two. Before the break, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about the real deal of a real meat burger versus this phenomenon, seemingly, of the Beyond Meat Burger. I mean, I feel like it's been around for a little while now. We know that there are certain brands, certain fast food chains uh, that uh, sell the Beyond Meat Burger, specifically A&W comes to mind. Um, but yeah, like I feel like all of a sudden it was here and it just took the the fast food scene by storm. Maybe because I am a, I, I'm, I'm, I eat meat, so I, I wouldn't have been their, their prime target clientele initially. So maybe they were around for longer than I even realized. Um, But yeah, they seem to have just kind of burst onto the scene and they're very popular and they do all these taste tests like, oh, can you test and see if it's if it's beyond meat or or if it's the real thing? And there are also, though, a lot of health claims made about this product and the idea that it's better for you than a traditional burger. And, you know, it's it's all these things that it's better for your health. Have a beyond meat burger instead of a real meat burger. But the question becomes Is that truly the case? Do we know if, in fact, these products are better for you? Like they go through safety testing, obviously. So like Health Canada is not going to not going to put something on a plate for someone and say, eat it. And they've not tested it. But the question is, is it better for you health wise than the traditional? So to talk a little bit about that. I have Ben Boyer on the line and he's an assistant prof at the University of Guelph. Ben, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of discussion about the Beyond Meat burgers that are out there in uh, in, in a couple of uh, fast food chains now. Specifically, A and W comes to mind. Uh, but there are a lot of um, a lot of alternatives to meat that are coming out with a lot of claims, and it's it's important that we kind of try to make the waters a little less murky for consumers. Uh, Some of the companies like Beyond Meat specifically is saying that they do truthfully feel that uh, that their their product is better for people than real meat. But is there science to back that up? Well, that's a very interesting uh, claim that they make. And it's very challenging to to come to those assumptions by looking at the label of the product and then comparing that label or that those nutritional or that nutritional profile to uh, a product like a a beef burger, for example. And uh, I guess when I'm looking at the label, um, and you look at the different uh, macronutrients, uh, so those being uh, protein, fat, carbohydrates, um, you really don't see any striking differences between uh, a Beyond Burger, per se, and a, a traditional meat product uh, like a beef burger. Uh, they're very similar in their protein and fat content, and particularly, uh, and maybe this is surprising, that, that their saturated fat contents are also very similar. Um, so you don't really see large differences there. Um, so it, it is very surprising that they're making claims that their product is healthier because you certainly wouldn't see that from a, a macronutrient standpoint. 
Yeah, it is interesting because in in some of the articles that I've read, I'm specifically uh, uh, talking about the CBC uh, article that was published a little while ago. They they've said, oh, but if you look at the uh, the studies that show how red meat can be bad for you, like this is where this is where we're we're kind of taking our 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 marks from. But yeah, if, if there aren't any like similar studies on the Beyond Meat burgers, then it's kind of tough to compare. Like, it is a bit like you know. It, it's, it does it does seem a little bit strange to make that claim without necessarily having all of the the data to back it up. Exactly. And from a, a pure science standpoint, um, you can make a lot of different uh, hypotheses, but until you actually put that hypothesis into a research setting and conduct a research experiment to look at differences in terms of digestibility and, uh, and nu- nutritional benefits, um, it, at this point, it's just a hypothesis, and uh, I guess the, the the quick and dirty answer is that we just don't know. Yeah, it's true because these market these products, I should say, haven't been out on the market for for a super long time yet. I mean, they've they've been around, but it, as you said, like there's not uh, there haven't been the studies to go along with it. And I I feel too that there's a real mindset that even if perhaps these products are similar in um, nutrient. Uh, I guess um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like the good and bad. If they're pretty, if they're pretty even in terms of of their calorie counts and and saturated fats and things, some people look at the social side of it and think, well, at least it's better for the environment because we're not, uh, you know, the 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 meat industry, if you will, is pretty. It takes a, a heavy environmental toll. So there, but again, those are two different separate things versus like a health of a person versus versus the health of the environment. Yeah, and that's kind of another topic if we, and that's one of the other claims with a lot of these uh, simulated meat products or these meat analog products is that they're better for the environment. And that's kind of a, another topic, and uh, I guess we could talk kind of the, the trade-offs there as well. Um, I, I'm, not at the, I'm not really on the side of saying that uh, animal agriculture is necessarily all bad for the environment. There are certainly advantages and disadvantages with uh, all types of food production and animal agriculture being included in that mix. Another facet of uh, of this story, uh, you know, dietitians have have also been quoted as as saying, you know, is the Beyond Meat burger a better option, even than saying uh, the the normal quote unquote normal red meat that we do know, like a lean cut of that uh, in a portion controlled size, like because that is a is a known quantity, and in some of these cases, the ingredients that go into the Beyond Meat burgers. It technically qualifies them as being like highly processed. So there, I guess it's it's sort of like the debate between diet coke versus real coke. Uh, should you be ingesting the aspartame, or is it better to just take all of the sugar from a normal coke or have like half of one versus ingesting a chemical or something that's been highly highly uh, processed? I guess There's, there are all these trade offs. Exactly, and the Beyond Burger certainly fits the definition of an ultra processed food product that. Uh, maybe even goes beyond just a highly processed uh, uh, food product because we, we take a lot of these highly processed food ingredients and then we combine them all to, to make up the, the Beyond Burger. And, those are, and if we look at the uh, kind of the recipe or the ingredients that go into that, it's, I think it's 21 or 22 ingredients, uh, several different types of uh, protein isolates and protein powders, uh, several different types of fats and oils, as well as binders to kind of uh, mold all of these different ingredients together to get kind of a similar type of uh, cohesive structure. 
It's interesting. In my mind, it kind of feels like no matter what type of protein you're consuming, uh, it should it should probably be, you know, do so in moderation, whether it's a real burger or a Beyond Meat burger, given all of the ingredients that are going into it. Um, it it's it's not these products aren't a license to go out and have burgers of any kind at, at like five days a week. You know, it's still they should still be treated as uh, kind of like a treat, if you will, and, and not a, a normal part of your diet. Well, and that's another uh, point there. So uh, I do want to kind of point out that uh, a beef burger, uh, if you buy it at the grocery store or if you would buy it, uh, buy it before it's had the seasonings and spices added to it, just consists of one ingredient, that, that ingredient being beef. Um, so we're still working with a natural food product. Uh, when we're consuming meat products, as long as we're consuming those products fresh and unaltered or we haven't added any ingredients to them yet. Um, so when we're comparing uh, traditional meat products to, uh, to a, a meat simulation product, we are actually comparing a, a natural whole food ing- product uh, versus one that's been ultra-processed. Ultra and uh, the kind of the nutritional and health benefits or health uh, detriments uh, between those two products has really not been developed yet from a research standpoint. And it's something over the next uh, five to ten years that's uh, very, very justified in terms of uh, both food science and nutritional uh, research. Well, then we will see, I suppose, over that time period and, and see what kind of uh, data does come out of these developments and advancements in, in kind of, I almost want to call it food technology, uh, but it is, it is you know, the it, it's the future as, as these things progress and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Ben, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and, and uh, sharing your insight with us into this debate over the Beyond Meat Burgers. Thanks very much for having me. We need to take a break for news. When we come back, we're talking about a story that's basically gripping the entire country. It's the investigation into three deaths in northern B.C. and the manhunt for two suspects involved in the case. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the Wednesday afternoon edition of London Live. I am not Mike Stubbs, as you can tell. I am Jess Brady. I'm your guest host this week. I'm the usual morning anchor here on 980 CFPL along with Jake Jeffrey. But uh, vacation time comes around and sometimes we do a little bit of a, what we call a newsroom shuffle. And so some of us take on different jobs and duties to cover off for vacation time. And I'm lucky that I get to sit in on the on the talk side of things for a week. Every once in a while. It's a lot of fun. I'm really very much enjoying it, especially on weeks like this where there is a lot going on both here in London and coast to coast. And this is, as I said, a busy week because we have this story that is just really gripping the entire country, which is what I said before the news there with Jacqueline LaBelle. A story that started off, obviously, with bad news about the death of a couple in northern B.C. They were on a on a trip, uh, an Australian man and uh, his American girlfriend. They were they were on a road trip and they were found uh, deceased outside of a, a tourist attraction, the Liard Hot Springs, which is in, in northern B.C. It's close ish to the Yukon border. And then a few days later, the body of another person was found along with a burned out uh, truck like a vehicle. So the mystery deepened. Then we find out that there are two people missing, two young young teens, or I should say older teens, 18 and 19, I believe. And they're missing on their trip. 
up in that area? Well, things took a big turn yesterday uh, in the case, and those missing teens are no longer just considered missing. They're considered suspects in this case of the three deaths. And joining me on the line now uh, from Manitoba is uh, Crystal Gamansing. She's with Global News. And Crystal, thanks so much, first of all, for taking some time this afternoon to chat with us. Hi, yeah, thanks so much. Not a problem at all. This this is really, as you were mentioning, an, an interesting story that uh, is still evolving and has already taken a number of twists and turns. No kidding. And now I, I kind of gave a Coles Notes version of, of, of kind of the lead up to where we are now. But what's the latest developments in, the, in this case, Crystal? Because it sounds like uh, the community in Manitoba, where you, I'm not entirely sure of where you are at this moment, uh, but a, a more remote community, Gillum, I think it's called, they're on edge right now because there was a potential sighting there. Yeah, so Gillen is in northern Manitoba. It's small in terms of population, but huge in terms of space. It's it's very much to the north. It's, you know, just as you're going north, sort of towards Churchill, Manitoba. So right now I'm actually in the vehicle. We're headed to the airport. We're in Winnipeg right now. And with my camera guy, Mike Gill, we're going to get up to Gillen this afternoon. Um, so Gillen is sort of the, the center point right now. Now, the RCMP in Manitoba earlier today, just actually about an hour ago, put out a tweet, the, the only the second tweet we've had from the RCMP in Manitoba, again, saying, um, if you see anything, please report it to authorities. It's believed that 19-year-old Cam McLeod and 18-year-old Briar Schmageski are up in Gillum, Manitoba. Now, this hasn't been confirmed by authorities. It's just that a gas, uh, gas station attendant believed that they had came in to purchase gas um, sometime earlier in the week. And at this point, authorities are saying, okay, we're, gonna, we're getting lots of tips, we're getting lots of information, but we need to verify this. So at this point, they aren't 100% certain that these two wanted individuals are in the community. Uh, we have had a chance to speak with the mayor, Dwayne Foreman. He said at this point, again, he hasn't had confirmation. He knows that people are talking about it. There's, of course, a lot of fear and concern and rumors and hearsay, and that's being fueled. But right now, people are being told, um, be careful, stay alert. If you see these individuals, do not approach them, but call authorities. And of course, like you had mentioned, this all goes right back to um, two murders in B.C. Uh, the couple that was sort of traveling around, we're talking about Lucas Fowler, a 23-year-old Australian. He had an American girlfriend, China Deese, a 24-year-old. Their bodies were found on July 15th. A couple of days later, they found another deceased individual. Authorities in BC have not identified that male, only saying that, uh, you know, they believe his age is between 50 and 60 years old. And that's also where they found um, the burnt out vehicle that McLeod and Schmigeski were traveling in. And that's sort of, you touched on it, why they thought, well, maybe these two are potential victims. It turns out, no, they are looking for these two in connection with those three deaths. It is a stunning story that just, as as you said off the top there, there have been a lot of twists and turns so far. And yeah, like these these young uh, young guys who are now the subject of, of this manhunt, cross-Canada manhunt, um, like Global and a number of uh, other news outlets, I believe, have, have spoken to one of the young guy's dads. They said, yeah, they're just, you know, basically fresh out of school. They didn't like their first job working at Walmart on uh, Vancouver Island, where they're from. So they decided to go on an adventure. And they were supposedly headed up to Whitehorse and and then this all transpires. So it does seem that from the way that they were characterized at first, just young adventurers. And now it seems something clearly has changed in in those plans because it, it is it seems unfathomable at this point that such a drastic change would have happened. 
Well, and you mentioned it. Um, um, Cam, Cam's dad uh, did comment previously, and, and we did get a statement. One of my colleagues got a statement from him, and it kind of talks to that point. I'm just going to read you a part of the statement. One of the things that he had said, he said, um, and pardon me, I'm just grabbing my notes here at this point. Um, you know, he is saying, um, this is what I, I do know. Cam is kind, considerate, and caring young man, always been concerned about other people's feelings. He went on to say, as we are trapped in our homes due to the media people, we are trying to wrap our heads around what is happening, um, and we hope that Cam will come home safely so that we can get to the bottom of this story. Um, you know, obviously, his father sitting there going, what is happening? Like you said, you know, we thought that these people were potentially victims. Now they're, you know, sought after. There's a manhunt that's involved four different provinces. We had B.C., we had Alberta, we had Saskatchewan. Now, of course, the story is centered around northern Manitoba. And the, the vastness of this search, is, as you've uh, quite rightly pointed out, Crystal, is another thing that just it, it gets me because we talk about how big Canada is. And, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, the, you know, just typical stereotypical comments about Canada. But in a situation like this, we really feel the impact of that vast space that we have because there is a lot of territory that they could be covering. And it just kind of goes to show you that, you know, it might take them a little while, but they are moving. And, and that certainly adds an element of difficulty to this investigation for authorities. Especially if you take into consideration if these two are, you know, they're said to be familiar with the outdoors, uh, you know, if they're experienced uh, campers, they know the backcountry, if they are able to camp and walk and hike, they could potentially avoid any sort of checkpoint or detection. You know, we're talking about Gillum, it's, it's 11 hours by car. It is incredibly remote and dense. You know, the mayor had actually said, if you love outdoor activities, if, if you love the rivers and hiking and fishing, it is an ideal spot for you just because of that fact. So, yes, RCMP are up in the area. They have committed and, and made a point of saying we have increased resources in Gillum and the surrounding communities. There's a, a number of First Nations there. Um, but it's going to take it's going to take time, obviously. And of course, you know, authorities don't want to, you know, share their hands. They don't know how tapped in these individuals may be to know where authorities are set up and, and exactly where they are and searching for them. That's so true. And it, it adds another level of complexity, right? And uh, uh, something that I wanted to hearken back a bit to, Crystal, that you talked about was how the community is on edge. And I, I mean, this is uh, about 10 years ago, almost for me, but I spent a month up in Whitehorse for a, an internship when I was finishing up J school. And something that struck me and has stayed with me is just how wonderful these communities are in terms of people being connected and checking in on each other. And I've heard stories about how people are very uneasy along the Alaska Highway right now and in the immediate aftermath of, of the deaths, um, that it just made people feel very, very unsafe. And as you mentioned, people are on edge in Gillum. It's, it's, it's a sense of lost security a little bit. There's a bit of a, a mixed situation there. From what we're hearing, uh, we did speak when I said we spoke to the to the mayor. Colleagues had an interview with uh, with Mayor Foreman, and he said there's there's a mix. There's some apprehension because you don't necessarily want to let your children out, um, but you also don't want to you know sort of get wrapped up in any of the hysteria around this. Again, RCMP haven't confirmed that they're actually there. Um, the deputy mayor says you know he's not concerned, but he said yeah I did lock my doors last night. So that's something they would he said he normally wouldn't have done. So it's a toss-up between, you know, continuing on and sort of going, well, wait a second, who's potentially outside?
Yeah, no, it's very true. And Ed, it's interesting, too, hearing the idea that, uh, that I mean, for those of us who are in a more urban setting uh, rather than the rural, uh, it is it's it's sort of funny to hear you don't lock your doors at night, <laughs> but it's but it's a different way of life in a different community. People know each other much more. And it's it's not. Uh, so it's it's another learning opportunity, I guess, for for the country to better understand its different corners and, and where we all live. Yeah, and if, if you spent any time in, in any kind of remote area, hiking or camping or fishing or just going on vacation, you know, right right across the country, the, the rural areas and the smaller communities, it, it wouldn't be any different than, say, maybe like Brooks, Alberta, or, you know, parts of parts of BC that, you know, it's, it's more sort of based around the resources in the community. A lot of people work in that general area. Tourism, obviously, big fly-in fishing, that sort of thing. Uh, but Gillum, Gillum is a, is a small community and you know there there is a ferry there is an airport there there is a train uh and then there's one road in and out so you can get in and out um and that's obviously why they've set up rcp has set up some checkpoints but it's it's a lot of space to try to cover so they are trying to add some resources and and try to confirm any of these reports there are these two individuals still in northern manitoba or potentially are we going to see this uh expand to another province all right. Well, it's one of those stories that uh, we'll be following along closely. And uh, I'm happy to hear that uh, such a great reporter like yourself, Crystal, is out there keeping tabs on the situation for us at Global. And thank you for your time this afternoon in giving us such a great report and safe travels to you and the crew as you head up to Gillum. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll talk again. Absolutely. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that is Crystal Gaman-Singh from Global News. She's in Winnipeg right now, literally on her way to the airport. That's dedication to uh, to the news and keeping all of the global affiliates across the country up to date on the latest. So we appreciate her efforts very, very much. And of course, we will keep you up to date on any developments that come out of northern Manitoba in relation to this case. So we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to another place that's a little bit far away. We're going to jump to South Korea. I had a chance to talk with Maggie McNeil of London earlier today. It was a real honor. She uh, is a local swimmer who is just making headlines at uh, the World Championships right now. And she won gold on Monday. It's very exciting in the 100-meter butterfly. So we're going to talk with her. You'll hear my conversation with Maggie after the break on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's not Mike. It's Jess Brady. I am your guest host this week. Mike is on vacation. Well-deserved, as I have said. So he's taking some time to get some R&R in, and that is fantastic. We all need to do that. It's very important, in fact. You gotsta. You gotsta. Otherwise, you get burned out, and that's no good. Not good at all. So... I told you before the break that I had the chance to chat with someone who's pretty cool and she's from London originally and she's done a lot of training here in London. It's Maggie McNeil, swimming superstar. Yeah, she has had a very big week. And so she uh, was very gracious and uh, took a few minutes to chat with me this morning, which was really cool. And she's currently she was on the bus in in South Korea with her teammates, uh, I think coming from competition at the time. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but yeah, like we're dealing with uh, 
with a significant time difference. You'll hear me mention that off the top of the interview. Uh, but yeah, so we had a chance to talk about her amazing week that she's had. I mentioned that she won gold in the 100-meter butterfly. It's not an easy event. That is, I mean, any swimming at that level is is just fantastic. You'll hear me gushing about it. I, I feel like a bit of a fangirl when I was talking to Maggie, and she was very sweet, and she didn't make fun of me. <laughs> which was really nice of her. Uh, She is absolutely lovely. So uh, like I said, I chatted with her this morning. We had a bit of a time difference there. So we did the er interview ahead of time and uh, we can listen to it now. Maggie, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. I know that you are very busy and uh, we're dealing with a significant time difference here. Thank you for having me. No problem. This has just been an incredible week for you. Take me back to Monday and everything that happened, because this is just fantastic. Thank you. Um, Monday, um, it doesn't, I can't believe it still. Um, I don't totally remember everything that went on. Um, it was just incredible to swim with the fastest flyers in the world. Um, my goal going into the beat was just to make a final, but to come out with gold was super amazing and unexpected. It is just fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a former swimmer myself, but never, ever at the level uh, that, that you're at, uh, you know, a former London lifeguard with the City of London. Uh, so hearing that you used to swim with Lack in, at, you know, the Aquatic Center, it, it, it brings like a sense of pride to me because I feel so, somewhat like I understand a little tiny <laughs> smidgen of, of what, you've, what you've done. And I, I love watching swimming broadcasts and competitions. So to know that we've got, you know, someone from London who's, who's over there. There, representing us in, you know, in South Korea, it, it is fantastic. What's the what's it been like to hear from people back home? Are people watching? What's what's it been like? Oh my god, it's been completely amazing. I've been getting so many supportive text messages and comments and everything from my good friends to my um, my elementary school teachers to friends of my mom and oh my god, everyone's been so great. It's just, it's wild. And like you said, it still kind of doesn't feel uh, like it hasn't really sunk in yet exactly that it's happened, eh? Yeah, no, definitely not. I don't know if it will by the end of the week. <laughs> it's true. And there's, and there's like more to go as well because, you know, you have, um, you have some other events as well, right? Yes, I have um, another individual event on um, Friday. Uh, and then I have one more relay. I think on the very last day, which is Sunday, I believe. It's it's a lot, and I mean, as as top level athletes, I mean, you do a lot of training, so you're ready for this. But it it's it's for anyone who has you know uh, you know taken part in relays or even like butterfly. It is butterfly is a beautiful stroke, but I I have never been able to uh, really master the coordination needed. It takes a lot of energy. How do you uh, kind of recover in in between your in between your races? Yeah, so uh, warm-down protocols are very uh, strict, and they definitely um, are imperative to your next performance. Uh, personally, I get right in the warm-down pool, grab a Gatorade, and then as soon as I get out, I grab, like, a bar or something to eat to restore my energy, whether that is to get another, um, get ready for another swim or just to go back to the hotel. Yeah, because rest is would be so needed, you know, and like just having that time to even uh, mentally collect yourself after such a big achievement. And, uh, you know, so it's a physical and a mental thing, too, eh? Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, you, you're, as you mentioned, you've, you're in the pool racing against, you know, some of the biggest names in, in, in this competition. And, you know, it's, you've seen other colleagues of yours from Swim Canada uh, going through and reaching, reaching these great heights. Uh, is it, is it, you know, I, I can't even imagine what it must feel like kind of like walking with giants a little bit. Yeah, um, quite literally, actually. Most of the competitors are at least six foot, um, <laughs> which is really funny just because I'm, I'm just under 5'7", so they literally are giants. But uh, I'll be sitting in the meal hall, and I'll be, like, watching, like, certain swimmers go by that I've been watching since I can remember, and I'll be like, oh, my God, like, there they are. But I'm like, I'm here with them kind of thing, which is still surreal. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, too, because you've got uh, some colleagues who are also from southwestern Ontario. Uh, how is that like? What is that like, I should say, to have uh, some people who are, you know, from your neck of the woods as well? Yeah, uh, it's super nice. The team has been super great. And it definitely just gives me a little piece of home, even while I'm away. Yeah, it's nice to be able to have like conversations and 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 relate to them uh, in a way that you might not be able to with other other people. Although it's it's neat to I guess you know have the experience of being at an international competition like this and and meeting people from all over the world. That must be kind of cool too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely for sure. Yeah. I've met so many people um, from around the world. Like I have friends in like Australia, for example, and written. So it really does uh, create friendships all over the world that you'll have for a very long time. Absolutely. These are these are memories and uh, experiences in the making here that, you know, they, they'll stay with you forever. And uh, I just I can't imagine being at your age and, and doing this sort of thing. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, what happens after South Korea, after the competition? What's what's on tap for you over the over the next few weeks and months? Yeah, so, um, my family, like my mom, my dad, and my sister are actually here with me in Korea. So we're planning on staying a few extra days uh, to kind of see Seoul. Because when you're at competitions, you really don't get to see much about of the city. That's true, yeah. So this is a, a great time to actually, uh, you know, go and take in the sights after things are done. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, and then I'm going to head home for a bit uh, before I have to head back to school at the end of August. That'll be wild going back <laughs> after the summer. Can you imagine yeah. like your your catch up with friends? Oh, so how was your summer? Well, you know, I set a Canadian record time. <laughs> that's that's pretty wild. Yeah. yeah, it'll definitely be. I don't know how different it'll be, but most of my friends have been watching live and supporting me throughout. So I I think it'll be pretty similar to what I've been going through the last few years with my swimming and my friends at least. Awesome. Well, it's it's great to know that you have such a support system and, uh, you know, everyone here in London is cheering you on as you continue to obviously excel and do such a great job. Maggie, we're so proud of all, of all that you've done and uh, we wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much. That's Maggie McNeil, London swimming phenom, who is doing great things at... Uh and competition this week in uh, South Korea. Just amazing. And again, best of luck to her and to all of the athletes from Swim Canada who were there. We need to take a break for news. We'll be back on London Live after this. Welcome back to London Live on 980 CFPL. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host this week. Mike is on vacation enjoying himself, hopefully, in the nice weather that we're experiencing this week. It's beautiful out right now. 
let's take a look. It is currently mainly sunny, 23 degrees. And with the Humidex, it feels like 26. That's it. That's very comfortable. That I, I can like. That is very good. Unlike over the weekend when it was ugh, like you'd step outside and you'd melt. It's brutal. No, this week has been much, much nicer. And uh, looking at your forecast for the rest of the week, we have 29 tomorrow, mainly sunny. Sunny again on Friday, 29. Sunny again on Saturday and 29. That's good. I'm going to a wedding on Saturday and it's outside. I don't want any rain. If it was a touch cooler, that would be good. Because <laughs> I, I overheat very easily. And so I worry sometimes. But often that can be alleviated if you have a nice cool drink. Water or perhaps an alcoholic beverage. You know, it is a wedding. There will be a lot of that. But that leads me to our next topic. And it's a story that Global News has done. It's on on the website. It's called Sober Curious. Why Canadians said goodbye to booze. And they talked to a, a few people who have decided to either entirely kind of like swear off alcohol or just decided to really scale back their consumption so that more often than not, they won't have a drink if they're out at a party or something like that. It's very interesting. I'll read you the first part of it. And this is chronicling uh, one person at the beginning, one of the one of the subjects of the article. When Olivia Blackmore tells people she doesn't drink alcohol, she's commonly met with a question in response. Why not? The 27-year-old journalist says while most people are understanding and don't pry, others can't help themselves. Drinking is commonplace in social situations, and she's used to being the odd one out. I've had a few people kind of push it, Blackmore told Global News, and that made me realize that I have to set my own boundaries in a conversation and shouldn't let other people pressure me into telling them exactly why I don't drink. Blackmore has a health condition, and drinking is simply not good for her. Her doctor has said that she can have a drink once in a while, and in the past, she would enjoy a beer from time to time, but today, she just stays clear. I found that it's really improved my confidence, she said. It was just such an act of self-love to completely say no to alcohol. So Blackmore, as the article goes on to say, is part of this growing group of people who choose not to drink for reasons other than addiction or dependence. So these people may be referred to as sober curious. And apparently this term is gaining traction in North America, referring to uh, people, often millennials. This is the second time we're referring to millennials today, uh, who have intentionally cut back on alcohol or stopped drinking altogether. In other words, they're mostly sober. Now, there's a writer uh, based in New York. Her name is Ruby Warrington, and uh, she's originally from England. And she recently released a book called Sober Curious, The Blissful Sleep, Greater Focus, Limitless Presence, and Deep Connection Awaiting Us on the Other Side of Alcohol. So it's basically like the book looks at ways that alcohol can have negative impacts on our social lives, relationships, and work. And it sort of asks people to be a little bit more mindful about our alcohol consumption uh, and your approach to drinking in general. So it's it's interesting. So like they're not saying don't ever drink, but, you know, just be a little bit more mindful and, and don't feel pressured into having alcohol if you're out in an event or what have you. You know, like you don't have to justify yourself to anyone else. For me, like I am a social drinker. Um, and so I do enjoy a beverage or two or, you know, when you're at an event or you're out with friends. Like I've talked a lot about this week. I was at a bachelorette last weekend and there were absolutely drinks that were consumed at that 100 percent. Um, 
but yeah, I like, uh, but sometimes when I go out with friends, I won't have anything to drink just simply because of most of the time, I'll be honest, it's like a cash consideration. If I drink, well, that means I'm not only having drinks at the bar or wherever we're going, but then I'm cabbing as well because I just don't bring my car. If I'm having a drink, I am not bringing my vehicle. That's just how it is for me. And uh, yeah, like that's, that's my choice. So sometimes if I'm looking at the budget and I'm like, yeah, you know, eh, it's not in the cards this week. I'm just going to I'm just going to do my own thing and I can have a great time with my friends. That's why we're friends. (laughs) I have a great time with them, whether I'm drinking or not. Um, But I definitely do remember like back when I was in my early 20s and you'd go out with your friends. And if someone was like, no, I'm not going to drink tonight. You're like, oh, why? But I think, thankfully, as we get older, uh, we don't we don't do that as much. Generally speaking, people hopefully are much more uh, tactful and they don't they don't push people when they're not when they say what their limit is and say, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Be respectful of it. And that's good. So some of the individuals that they've talked to uh, in this story um, that Global did about sober curious, um, they've said that, yeah, like most people are pretty nice. Uh, like and it shouldn't even be nice. That's just should be commonplace courtesy that you don't push for information that you are not entitled to about a person like that's a personal choice. You are you don't have to feel pressured to give information that you don't want to pretty interesting. So apparently a UK study found that more young British people are drinking less alcohol now than a decade ago, that according to the study, 29% of respondents aged 16 to 24 said they were non-drinkers in 2015 compared to only 18% in 2005. In the US, alcohol volumes dropped 0.8% in 2018, with beer being hit the hardest with a 1.5% decline. That's uh, data that was compiled for the Wall Street Journal. It's interesting. And they also noted that um, growth in wine and spirits also slowed. So there's another person that they've quoted, and it says, 32-year-old Amy Greaves quit drinking. Uh, It was a deliberate choice she made at 22 because alcoholism runs in her family. And Greaves said she wanted to be a good role model for her siblings. At parties, Greaves says that people will often ask her why she's not drinking. While she will have a sip of wine on occasion, she doesn't drink at parties and often has a seltzer water in hand. She said that some people will try to coax her, uh, but most of the time people are pretty chill. She said that she figures this the the coaxing from people is kind of like a need. It comes from a need to not drink alone. So they want they want company, which, you know, I, I mean, I can understand that. Like, as I said, you know, people often say, oh, why not? Come on, have a drink. It's not a big deal. Well, for some people it is. It's a choice. And you really should not push them for that. You know, you should just be understanding of it. So, yeah. It's very interesting to read this, that there's a whole movement. I didn't realize that it was to the point where there was a name for it, first of all, uh, and that it was, you know, I can't necessarily say that that's totally tied to the uh, drop in, in alcohol sales. I wouldn't. I'm no scientist. I haven't done that study. I wouldn't say it necessarily is directly correlated, but certainly maybe it's a contributing factor. Our attitudes towards alcohol are changing. We had a discussion uh, with Dr. Dr. Myron from Ottawa earlier in the week about uh, the number of people seeking out ER treatment for alcohol-related issues and how we're seeing a rise in women and young people, and that the study, while it didn't look at causation, the reasons, direct reasons why this was happening, it did note in the, the coverage of the article that, uh, you know, that we are seeing changing attitudes towards drinking. Women are more branded towards, like, there are more brands, you know, um, have you guys heard of 
the mix of rosé wine and vodka. I forget what it's called. It has like a different name. And I see the ads for it like on Instagram and social media and everything. I guess I'm their target audience. I do like rosé. And I do enjoy a vodka mixed drink every once in a while. Um, So maybe they figured, let's get her. It's possible. I have not purchased it. I probably don't plan to. I like what I like. I don't need to expand on that one. But yeah, so I mean, there is a lot of marketing now towards women and other groups that maybe perhaps more traditionally weren't marketed to. So yeah, it's, it's interesting just to see how attitudes are changing um, in, in ways of maybe scaling back on alcohol and also increasing it for some individuals, our consumption of it, increasing the consumption. It's interesting. Food for thought. I feel like there's a lot of that in this show today. Lots to think about and digest. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about one person who has a lot to think about now that they've struck it rich. An Elderton man won the Lotto 649 last week. Yeah. Have you heard about this? If you haven't, we're going to tell you all about it. Coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, London Live, your Wednesday edition. I'm Jess Brady, your guest host. We only have about 12 minutes left in the show. Again, it flies by every day. We're just so busy talking to so many great people. It's awesome. Love it. So before the break, I kind of teed up what we were going to be talking about next. We found out this morning that one lucky gentleman from Elderton won a massive jackpot from 649, Lotto 649. He won $9.1 million. I know. Amazing. He bought this ticket here in London at the Mobile gas gas station on uh, Oxford Street. And he matched all six numbers. He won the jackpot. It's pretty cool. $9.1 million. It was the July 20th draw. So cool. I always love hearing stories like this because it gives me hope. Now, <laughs> I should also put out the caveat that I don't play the lottery because, I mean, there was a story about millennials and how, oh, they're not playing the lottery as much. And I'll tell you this right now. It's because we have less disposable income to to buy tickets. That's why. Just saying. But the lottery is fun. And I will sometimes buy a ticket if the jackpot for like Lotto Max gets up to like, I don't know, 50, 60 million dollars, something crazy like that. Just because why not? I mean, it's it's a dream. How cool would it be? It's a little bit of entertainment. And you can pretend until you know the numbers aren't yours that maybe you could win. It's like Schrodinger's cat. You haven't won and you haven't lost. You've, you're just in limbo until you find out. So it makes me feel like what would you, what would you do if you won nine point one million dollars or any significant amount of money? I'm going to be talking with producer uh, Kelly in a second about this. But if you have thoughts on what you do with a massive jackpot or if you want to just tell me, like, do you play the lottery? Do you see it as worthwhile for your hard earned money? Number is 519-643-2222. It's 519-643-2222 or 1-866-354-8255 if you're out of town. You can also tweet at me, JessBrady980. You can tweet at me. And let me know if you play the lotto, what you do with the money if you won. It's a dream. Kelly, what would you do if you won? $9.1 million. What would I do? Yeah. Let's see. You know, I've always wanted a personal island. 
Ooh. I think that would be fun. You could do that. But my issue is, okay, let's say the island costs less than 9.1 million. Let's just say it costs 8.1 million. Okay. I spend that much money on the island. But then mm-hmm. if I were to live there by myself, what would I spend the rest of the money on? Well, you could get a boat. A big oh. boat to get to the island. Mm-hmm. And a nice little uh, life jacket. Yeah, yeah, I need yes. that. Yeah, yeah. And also all the furniture and stuff for the, like, are you building a house or is the house already there on the island? Hmm. I think I want to design it and build it myself. I think that would be fun. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So maybe your your island budget needs to be a little bit lower mm-hmm. for the real estate and then your building budget will like equal out. Yeah, so when yeah. I win the lottery, Jess, I'll let you know and you get to help me plan all of this out. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I like it. I think that if I was going to be a winner of the lottery, I would for sure, I, I always kind of say this, this is one of my things, I would kind of do an around the world trip, like all the places that I'd ever, I've ever wanted to go. That's perfect. And then friends and family, whoever could have time off from their jobs or whatever, they could come with me for whatever leg of the trip they wanted. That's amazing. You know, it would have to be like a substantial win for me Mm -hmm. to be able to afford this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe I'd have to put a limit on like two guests per leg, like me plus two people. Who knows? Smart. (laughs) Yeah. You know, just to make sure it's not too crazy. You know, Mm -hmm. then I might have to borrow Drake's plane or something like that. Oh, gosh. If I was going to have that many people. But Mm -hmm. that would be one of the first things. Donate a heck of a lot of money to some really good charities here in town, Humane Society and, uh, you know, all the... Excellent places that are doing good work here in the city. Innova, Locke, all those good places. You're such a sweetie. Well, <laughs> I mean, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. But yeah, like I would I would definitely, There's. it's just the freedom to decide what you want to do, right? You could do anything. It'd be, exactly. It would be very exciting. Mm-hmm. And so, like yeah. I don't play tickets myself, but my yeah. mom plays tickets. Oh, okay. And, you know, I want to say congratulations to the man who won this yeah. money, but I'm going to speak on behalf of my mom. She will love to have this money. She's <laughs> always wanted her own little restaurant. Oh. And I feel like with 9.1 million, there's a lot of opportunities for that. So Absolutely. you can have a lot of restaurants here in London with that. Yeah, you mm-hmm. certainly could. And it's funny, like, I'm not sure if the gentleman who won has been like a re- like a, a constant player. I was going to say like religiously plays. Like every week he buys his tickets. Maybe he even has like numbers uh, that he always plays. But it's always funny when you hear of a story where someone, it's just like their first time buying a ticket or whatever and they strike it rich. And then you have people who have played like their whole lives and they never win. So it's it just obviously shows you just how random it is. Like you you never know but that's part of the magic because it could be any time that you buy a ticket you know exactly like i remember yeah. what was that like a year ago two years ago um a girl for her 18th birthday i think i think her dad bought her cash for life which is a thousand dollars a week for life which is the big prize and i think she won that, that is at, so at age cool. 18 right oh so that's one lucky girl (laughs) for sure and I think of that it's like how nice would that would be like you could just bank that thousand bucks every week put it into your savings account or whatever keep working like you you know you got to go to go to school get a job do something that you really love and then you have the freedom to you know not worry so much about you know financial responsibilities because you've got a little bit of extra every week you're good to go. That is a beautiful thing. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Now, I again, we put out the phone numbers here for anybody who might be interested in telling us their lotto strategy. Maybe, hey, do you buy quick picks like where you just go and say, give me the random numbers or do you have numbers that you buy every single time? Well, I want to know. Number is 519-643-2222. 519-643-2222. 1-866-354-8255. Or tweet at me at Jess Brady 980.
We need to take a quick break. When we come back, maybe we'll have a call. Maybe someone will let us know about what their lotto strategy is. Maybe not. We'll see. (laughs) That's coming up in the last few minutes of London Live. Welcome back. We have just about a minute left of the show talking about lottos and if you would if you buy a ticket, what you'd do with the money if you won. Oh, it's a beautiful dream. It would be so nice. I'd also adopt a ton of dogs. (laughs) And then I'd have like my own little dog rescue (laughs) based out of my home (laughs) where it's just all the dogs that I adopted. And it would be great. It would be a lot of fun. I think it would be good. But yeah, so on that happy note, uh, we'll end off this edition of uh, London Live on 980 CFPL with dreams of millions of dollars and lots of puppies. That's probably, that's that's goals. That's lotto goals right there. <laughs> Powers that be, come on, if I buy a ticket, you know my intentions are good. <laughs> Let me win the jackpot. It will be lots of fun. Anyway, thank you so much to everyone who was on the show today. Uh, thank you to producer Kelly for all of her assistance and just in general excellence that she brings to the show every single day. And we will chat with you all tomorrow on London Live on 980 CFPL.